Hi, you guys. This is Liz Ryan, and this is the Truth About Work podcast, episode 42. Talking about work, how to navigate it, how to get the work you want and deserve, and how to thrive at it, and then just the institution of work, how to make it better, how to make it more human specifically. That's our mission to reinvent work for people. So the first topic is employment gaps. Wow. Every now and then I hit on a topic just inadvertently that really lights people up. And this is one of them, employment gaps. You wouldn't think it would be that big of a deal, but wow. I posted a couple of Q and A's on social media over the past few days. Hey Liz, you know, what's your take on employment gaps? And I told the truth, I have never worried about employment gaps, meaning a time when a job candidate was between jobs for a month or six months or even two years, three years, like they had their life to live. My curiosity is when they were working or volunteering or in school, whatever, what what is their experience that's relevant and what is their thought process, right? How do they look at the assignment and how would they approach the assignment? How do they think? I always say that your goal on either side of the desk in a job interview is to get your own and the other person's brain working. So you can both you know, interact at that level. How do we think and how do we think together? You want to see that there's going to be some coherence or some congruence so that it's going to make sense for you two guys to work, to work together. So I'd like to get the candidate's brain moving. I like to get my brain moving. And, uh, and that doesn't happen all that often in a job interview. There's a lot of rote, you know, here's my question, waiting for your answer. And that's a shame, obviously. Um, it's not anybody's highest and best use of their time or their talent. But the question, what were you doing during these nine months when you were not working? I, I can't, I, I, I don't know. I just can't imagine saying to the candidate, so what were you doing? during this time. It sounds accusatory to me. It doesn't sound appropriate. I've never asked that question. I've been an HR person since 1984, but been hiring people even longer since 1980. Yeah, I was 20. I was a supervisor, recycled paper products in Chicago, greeting card and giftware company. I was a supervisor, so I started interviewing people. I, I couldn't fix my mouth to say, what have you been doing since your last job? I don't want to hear, like, not that I'm not sympathetic, but I don't want to elicit an answer like, well, you know, I had a major health emergency or my mom was in her decline and passed on. I assume they had a good reason for being not at work. But but more than that, you pull the truck back another hundred yards. You say, why do we have to account for our time like that? You, you go one more step past being an employee, right? And you have your own business plumbing and heating or landscape design or legal services or whatever, people are not going to say, how long has it been since you had your last client? It's just a really weird question. I have a business. Listen to my credentials. Ask me questions about my expertise and my point of view. Hire me or don't. Why would you think as a consultant or as a prospective employee that I would be accountable to you to tell you what I've been doing? And, and, and the people came out of the woodwork, you guys. My inbox is full of people saying, it's a highly appropriate question. What have you been doing since you stopped working? Or even a gap a year ago or a gap five years ago. I'm going to ask because I have to make sure that the right kind of person is coming in here. Suggesting that 
They fear that what's in the gap is something nefarious, is something disreputable, like you would even tell them. And also, you guys, what we formerly might have seen as disreputable or or questionable, is, 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 it's all systemic, isn't it? It's like my circumstances led me to, you know, do whatever, right? What are we afraid of? Really, what are we afraid of? Somebody was out of work, God bless. I was raised on the same pop culture diet, everybody, presumably in the West, certainly in the United States of America, was in, in my generation, which was bank presidents, successful bank presidents, like Mr. Drysdale and the uh, 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 Beverly Hill, what's the name of that show? Beverly Hillbillies? Wow, yeah. The Clampets and the Bodines. He was, he was playing golf, that was the mark of success. The bank president playing golf, all the executives, you know, playing golf and enjoying themselves because they had made it. So wherewithal, discretion over your time, self-determination, these are viewed as marks of success in our, in our, in our mythology in the United States. But then the minute a working person says, well, I took six months off. I needed to, I had to, I chose to, I wanted to, how dare you? How dare you get off the conveyor belt? So this is like an intensely fear-based question. What were you doing in your employment gap? And people say, I have to know. Which brings to mind for me that, is it Tom Petty's song? I need to know, I need to know, I need to know. If you think you're gonna leave, then you better say so. I love Tom Petty, I'm so sad when Tom Petty passed on. I have always loved Tom Petty's music. I need to know though, that's romantic love or jealousy. I need to know. I need to know. That's fear. Tom Petty or the character he was portraying in that song, afraid. This person is stepping out on me. I need to know what's going on. And this is the emotion also present in the question, what were you doing during that gap? It's so jarring. It's so weird. It's so impolite. We do not give up the need and the requirement to be polite just because we're interviewing someone for a job. In fact, the job, sh the interview should be about the job. The interview should be about the job. So listen, Sarah, here is the job, okay? It's called marketing coordinator. And in this job, you're going to work in the marketing department. You know, you're going to meet Molly. Molly is the manager of the marketing department. And she's, you know, she's going to be here in the Zoom call in about 40 minutes. But I'll just give you kind of like an overview so you have an idea what, what the job would be like every day. You'd be working from home and um, you'd be keeping up the marketing database. That is the products and the parts that go into the products. Um, products change. They have different parts. So you'd be updating that. And there's some inputs and there's some reports that are outputs that various people need and there's a schedule of that. But there's you know a lot to the job besides just the database and report generation aspect. You'd be uh, doing copy editing on marketing copy, eventually writing marketing copy, both for marketing collateral materials and also for the website. And you'd be working with the other department members on various marketing projects associated with product launches, that sort of thing. So it's an office job. It's on the phone. It's on email. It's on spreadsheets. It's on there's some art stuff that you'd be tabulating, keeping track of. Yeah. So this is kind of like an overview of what the job is. So I know you've done a bunch of marketing jobs and I'm dying to hear about all that. And it's specifically, you know, sort of the overlap or, or what strikes you about this role and what sounds familiar, what sounds less familiar. You know, let's just talk. You lay out the job and you say, what, what does it sound like to you? Sound 
like it'd be interesting, eh? And sound like something that would be be good for you to do. Does it sound challenging? Does it pay enough? You know, we're paying 48 to 55K for the person walking in here. Does that sound like it's gonna work? We're just gonna compare our needs. We're looking for an intersection of interests. And I have a theory that the fixation with with you know suspicion and weeding people out really comes from a good place. Weirdly, it comes from the place that we know we can't hire everyone. And some organizations are really obsessed with interviewing a lot of people. We're going to interview 16 people for this marketing coordinator job, even though we only have one job opening. Meaning 15 people, you know, potentially are really bummed out. But we have to do that because it's quality. Why don't you interview 400 people then? It's a bad process. It's a bad process, right? When, 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 if I'm a purchasing manager, procurement manager, and I'm sent out to go find vendors, I'm not going to interview 16 vendors. That makes no sense because I'm going to be able to get the list down to like two before I waste people's time with an interview. But in the hiring realm, we think that using up these people's time and energy and getting them potentially excited about it has no cost, has no ramifications, but it does. And human beings who interview a lot in their job description, they know that. It's icky. It's gross talking to people when you know that the vast majority of them are not getting the job. So we develop as a defense mechanism this suspicion, this this air of, oh, well, maybe people are trying to pull something over on us or just sort of like everybody has flaws and my job is to is to find them because that gives us a justification for saying no thanks to somebody. It's real gross and we have to pick it apart and we have to look at what is wrong with it. And it's damaging to everybody, right? Damaging to candidates, damaging to the interviewers who end up sort of crabby and crusty and and full of fear. It's awful, it's awful, right? We should not be asking people about their employment gaps. Who cares? I care what you did when you were working or doing something else that was relevant. Not what you were doing when you weren't working. What possible answer could someone give that you'd say, oh, really? That's what you were doing? You were helping your sister start a business? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounds suspicious. You know, like what? What? There's too much fear in the equation, you guys. And my inbox is full, both with people saying, thank you for bringing up this topic. It's absolutely pathological how some organizations are obsessed with employment gaps. It's really, it's really cruel and unfair. Other people writing and saying, yeah, don't ask about employment gaps or you will give rise to potential employment discrimination claims in your company because the answer to a question about the employment gap could obviously disclose someone's protected class status, like parental status. You're not allowed to discriminate, not supposed to discriminate on the basis of parental status, but if they say, well, you know, took a couple years off to be with my children. Uh-oh, now they just said they had children and you forced them to. We gotta be smarter. But then other people writing, defending this practice to the death, defending it to the death. I need to know, like Tom Petty, I need to know. I need to know if you took some time off, then you better say so. I have to vet and I have to approve your reason for being out of the workplace, for taking a step off the conveyor belt. How dare you? How dare you? Creepy. How dare you? We're all independent economic units now. That has happened for the last 20 years. The 
the former social contract where you would get a job like my dad, maybe your dad or granddad or parents, mom. It used to be you had the job for decades. Now, no, we're all independent little boats on the water out here and you're going to work sometimes and you're not going to work all the time. And the gaps between jobs are getting longer because the process of getting a job is so hosed up. And then obviously the pandemic going around. In this day and age, with the pandemic raging, people are still going to ask you, what were you doing since you left your last job? Uh, job hunting, you know, because there's a pandemic. It's not as easy as it was before. I, I, I just, hmm, yeah, it's really, it's really bizarre. But I want to look along with you at the, at the sickness way deep down, the underlying ideas that we still have you know, very, very old Dickensian notion. If you're not working, if you're not industrious and you're not working all the time, you lose one job, you just get another one. You, they would still ding you if you took a big step down in altitude, took a lower level job because you needed a job. They'd still ding you and you wouldn't even probably get the interview. Probably better off from that standpoint, not having a job. But getting the interview where you have to answer the question about the gap. Or the other thing people do, of course, is they take a job and they don't put it on their resume. It's just for money. Which is insanely messed up, too. Oh, I'm embarrassed of this job. I won't put it on my resume because somebody might not like it. Which is so weird, the judgment. You walk around when before the pandemic and you meet people. You're not super impressed by every single person you meet, right? They're fine. They're fine human beings. But not everybody, you know, whatever, is super sparky or has a lot of ideas. So when you meet somebody kind of sharp, it's a wonderful occasion. And the way I feel is that that's the only people we're really inviting in to interview is somebody who has a little spark, a little pizzazz in their resume. Just just a little humanity shows through a little, just a little brain activity, you know, get everybody's brain working. Talk about the role. Talk about your experiences that relate to it. Tell stories, you know, on both sides. Stories about the culture, stories about what you've done before you're looking for you know you're looking for congruence like i said before an intersection of interests so yeah employment gaps not not really relevant i don't know uh, 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 in my mail it's uh, is this person reliable like i i quit a job in february and i didn't job hunt again till june how does it make me less than reliable i'm so confused i have wherewithal i get to decide we all get to decide so there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear in the hiring process. So, but, you know, at least on the plus side, if somebody is freaked out because you didn't job hunt for four months when they thought you should have been employed the whole time, you know, then you probably don't want to work with them anyway. But it's just sad that that attitude is still out there in force. Oh, also, you know, um, oh, I said that already. The, 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 the compliance thing. Very, very, very inappropriate question, even from a... HR compliance aspect, right? Because people people have family situations that you're not supposed to ask about. Yeah, well. Okay, hi Liz. I am a, uh, interviewing for a commission sales job. The base is too low for me to live on, but with a decent commission, I could easily make it. How do I bring that up at the interview? All right. A lot of sales jobs, probably most sales jobs, have a commission aspect. And a lot of them have a base salary that you couldn't live on or you would really would be squeaky trying to cover your bills. So you ask questions about how long, first of all, you're gonna look and see how long they've been in business. That's gonna be on you know, the CEO's LinkedIn, it's gonna be on 
hopefully their website. You can just Google the name of the company and say, what are their revenues? How long have they been in business? A lot of that information is just out there. But also you're going to ask them, you know, where do you get your leads from? Where do you get your sales leads from? How much do people uh, on average in this role make in their first three months? And you're going to ask if you can get a higher um, base, like for the first three months or six months or however long it takes to get established. Because a lot of people don't have an extra source of income to cover their bills while they're getting up and running in a sales job that has a commission piece to it, right? And so, you know, if they do, that's great. But if they don't, it's perfectly reasonable to say, you know, I want the job and I believe I can be successful in it based on what, you know, you've told me about the role so far. But I'm curious whether there you, you could do a sign-up bonus, let's say $3,000 sign-up bonus, just to tide me over for a few months for that income that I will soon bring in for myself as well as for you, but that I won't get until I get up and running, until I learn your process, and until I have time to work these prospects and turn some of them into accounts, you know? Also, of course, job like that, look at glassdoor.com. Look at the company's job ads on Indeed and see what kind of reviews they get from other job seekers. you got to do it. Because one, that what can happen in that situation is they hire you and they pay you the modest base that doesn't pay your bills. And really what you're doing is not sales, but marketing research. You're doing marketing research for basically for, you know, galley slave wages for very low wages. Because they don't know whether this is going to turn into sales or not, but they're just going to have you get on the phone and they're going to spend $3,000 a month, you know, $35,000 a year just to see you know, if, if anything catches fire, but that's, that's not appropriate. If they don't know that it's going to work and you're going to make some commissions over a reasonable period of time, then they're going to have to pay you more. Does that make sense? This also goes for third party recruiters. If you're a third party recruiter working for yourself or working for an agency and a company says, Hey, I want you to go look for this type of person. You know, you better feel that it's reasonable. You better feel good about them as a place to work. And also that the skill set for the money they're willing to pay is reasonable. Because if it's not, same thing. You're doing unpaid marketing research and they may never hire anybody. They might be just trying to gather resumes for to, to survey the market. And sometimes they will tell you that. We just want to survey the market. Well, you should get paid for that. Because you can't make a commission if they don't hire anybody. Right? We're all getting better. Independent economic units, like I said before. We're all growing our muscles together. And your vocal cords, are mu they're not muscles. They're not muscles. I spoke too soon. <laughs> but they do get stronger. They get stronger. When you use them, <laughs> they get stronger, you guys. Yeah, okay. Dear Liz, my boss takes me for granted. This is partially my fault because I agreed to way too much extra work too early in the relationship and she relies on me now completely. How do I change this? Ugh. Mm. We sometimes make a bed and then it's very hard to get out of it. What's gonna happen is that you are going to gradually climb out of this pit that you dug. And I understand why you did, because we've almost all done it. We wanna be eager to please, we wanna be so helpful, we wanna show our value, all these good reasons. And then we say, oh, I'm completely taken for granted. For one thing, I've misrepresented what's a reasonable workload for me in this role, in that the workload I now have, because I asked for it, it's keeping me up work until 11 o'clock at night and the weekends, right? A lot of us have been there. 
the way that you're going to climb out of that is by being more definite and more projecty, if that's a word, about your projects. So you're going to get a handle right now on everything you're working on. Write it down. I'm working on this. I'm project management, right? I'm working on this. I'm working on that. You're going to prioritize it all. And then you're going to set up a meeting with your boss and say, hey, I just wanted to run through with you what I've got on my plate and make sure you and I are in sync with respect to the priority of these various things so that, you know, I'm working on the stuff that you feel is the most important for me to work on first, second, and third. And you put timelines. You say, this will be about six hours. This one will be about seven hours. This one will be an hour. This is going to just ever so slightly wake your boss up to the reality that you have been carrying all this extra slack without saying anything about it. So those days are over. Now, everything you get, if it can't be handled in the moment, it's going in this project plan. So your boss has to be made aware, and you are the person who's going to make them aware of what all you've got going on, how long each of these things is going to take. And every new project, you're going to say, okay, do you want that to go in the fourth position just behind the new product catalog? Or do you want that to go in the second position just behind the weekly sales report? You tell me. You just have to re-educate them about really the fact that every single thing they give you has consequences. It slows something else down. We all do this, right? We try to pick up the slack and I'll just be the hardest little worker in the history of humankind. It doesn't help us. It doesn't make anybody value us more. And then we do double the work training our boss out of that delusion that we put them into, right? It's okay. It's a great learning experience to take back control of your desk and your role by inviting your boss to help you set priorities, thereby showing them, wow, all this stuff cannot just magically get done this weekend, right? It's a good learning experience might work really, really well. It might be frustrating. Your boss might get frustrated with you. Like, how come you can't do all this stuff? You used to. Yeah, I gave up my entire life. You know, during the early part of the pandemic, it was actually comforting to have all this work. It made me feel industrious and useful and not as bored and depressed. But now I got, you know, no, I can't, I can't keep working like this. Right. But, but it, the big learning is that you'll never do this again. Now got bitten by a snake, that particular snake, is not going to have an easier time, an easy time biting you again because you're aware of it. You know what it looks like. My own eager to pleaseness. My guess, at least 50% of us, folks who are down with the human workplace message, have done the exact same thing. Because we were brought up to please. All right. So, Liz, what are the new rules for working from home? I mean, I don't know the new rules for working from home. The one big rule I've seen everywhere with respect to working from home is set up a work area in your home, put on the clothes at the start of your work hours, you know, be very formal about that, that wall between work and home. Hey, you got to do what works for you. I have never done anything remotely like that at all. I mean, I started working from home in a way with my very first consulting project that I did alongside my regular job at night after my regular job, just for a couple months when I was 25. And, you know, obviously I wore my regular clothes or my PJs and I did the project on the floor of my living room. Okay. This was before personal computing. Okay. If you can stand it, it literally was, 
It was just clerical. I just did it on paper. And then I started working from home my first maternity leave, but I really didn't get a lot of work done because it was twins. It was double babies. Like, what are you supposed to do? How are you going to have a minute? I could barely take a shower, literally. I couldn't even take a shower. So I didn't get a lot of work done, but I had my email and certain things that I could glance at. Maybe, you know, both babies happen to fall asleep at the same time. It's kind of rare. Um, and then I started working from home a lot as the years went on and I had more kids and whatever. And then I started consulting and a lot of work from home in the consulting. I've never had that division. I never felt like that was helpful. If I had a thought, I might run over to the to the laptop and just dash off an email or do whatever and then you know go back and do something from home for me the rule of working from home is do what works for you get up and put a load of laundry in it takes a minute get up and chop an onion if, if you want to throw an onion in the slow cooker and make dinner I mean like that's the benefit of working from home if you like that very hard division then have it you know that wall between work and home then then do it by all means but if you want to get on a conference call and walk the dog, you're working from home, walk the dog. You can stay on the conference call and be very productive and effective as a member of the conference call while you're walking the dog. Hey, you know, maybe not walking the dog, might be something else. Watering the plants. Yeah. If you have ideas for rules for working from home, by all means, send them to us. Support at humanworkplace.com. And if you have a question for me to answer on an upcoming edition of the Truth About Work podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Have a great, great, great rest of the day.